O'Reilly Digital Media explores the future of audio, video, and photography. Each show brings you insights from leading experts. Learn more by visiting digitalmedia.oreilly.com. Hi, I'm Derek Story with O'Reilly Media, and I'm here with three of the four authors for Subject to Change, and we have some really interesting stuff to talk about. I'm just going to go around real quick and let the guys introduce themselves, and then we'll jump right into the meat of the subject. Hi, I'm Brandon Schauer. I'm a Director of Experience Design here at Adaptive Path. I'm David Verba. I'm a Technology Advisor to Adaptive Path. And I'm Peter Merholtz. I'm President and one of the founders of Adaptive Path. In, in my world, I think there's a misperception about design sometimes, that design is just done by designers, and uh, that it's sort of this isolated activity. And that's not actually effective design. That's not actually the way it can or should go, right? I think design's both been uh, hyped over the past uh, couple years in terms of making it onto magazine covers and the like, but also is, is just misunderstood in terms of it's something maybe someone else does, something that happens in a black box. And we've really tried to, to confront that directly in the book. A couple of thoughts are just that design is not, say, a, a thing. It's not an object. It's not what maybe a, a CEO says when, or thinks of when he says, gee, I, I want a hot new, I want my iPod for, for my uh, product line. And it's not really just about aesthetics. It goes much deeper than that. It's not a distinct role. It's not something just one particular person in a black turtleneck down the hall with cool sneakers does. But in fact, it's something that I think a whole organization can be involved in. It's not also something that a Hail Mary pass or a rock star that you're going to rely on to to bring you um, great work. That when you as a whole organization talk about design, it's something that everyone can suddenly become involved in and engaged in. Maybe not it's, it's not what they do every day, but by being involved in the thinking of what could a product be, how can experience unfold, how can we support it, that's something that a whole organization can can think about. So when we talk about design, we talk about empathy for customers, really understanding from their point of view what is a good experience, what could drive that kind of an experience. We talk about problem solving, just the ability to think through using artifacts, using examples of what what an experience, what a product or service might look like. We talk about ideation and prototyping, so making things physical, getting your ideas out into the space that everyone can look and touch, and then seeing what wrong about it, breaking it, and making it better. And then finally, finding um, alternatives. So quickly understanding what are all the possibilities out there and presupposing solutions before you've actually got all the information to make a decision. So how do you make that happen? I mean, uh, you know, so, I mean, right now, I mean, do you bring design in or does the issue of design start earlier in the, in the process of, of product development? How, you know, how do, how do you make that happen? How do you take what you're saying and, and bring it to real life? The way, well, we, we advocate an, a number of approaches, but I think definitely we, uh, one of the things we're advocating is that designers get involved earlier in the process. Too, too often designers aren't included until the product requirements have been specified, the market requirements have been specified, and they're simply given a document with a list of bullet points and said, make this. And oftentimes when the designer tries to do that through their processes, they realize faults with what they've been given. And had they been included earlier on, they would have been able to constructively contribute to those initial discussions. We're not advocating that designers 
necessarily are the leaders of this, but they need to be a voice at the table with folks from marketing, with folks from business, with folks from IT, all of whom will have inputs, valuable inputs to help drive uh, the outcomes. And, and I would also add that, that designers, in addition to being, we need to bring them on earlier, that design, once again, is not something that's necessarily done solely by people who are defined as designers. The design is an activity, and it needs to be involved in the entirety of the product development life cycle. So it's not enough just to have some design happen up front, but design has to be an ongoing thing, because when you start talking about products that are going to be successful, they have to be the design has to strike a lot of different layers and it has to design it has to strike layers beyond the product itself it, the product's situation within the, the uh, consumer environment the product situation within the consumer's lifestyle and and how it contributes to the, to the company following on that one of the trends that we've seen with respect to design is that designers are less about necessarily uh, about making form, about doing, creating that final product. And a lot of the role of the designer is facilitation, is working with the whole team and bringing out the great ideas and helping them figure out how to articulate those ideas. And as Brandon was saying, prototype them, iterate them, make them physical, make them real so that everyone can talk about them. So it's not that designer off in a corner, often is cubicle, creating madly sketches, but working with an entire product team, so everyone is sketching. The designer has definitely some experience and some history that, that they can rely upon. They might be better sketchers or something. So, yes, they'll be, they'll be leaned on a bit more, but a good designer is drawing out ideas from across the product team and helping everyone figure out what it is that they want to do. Well, you know, that, uh, that's really interesting. And, of course, who the designer and the marketing team and everyone are, you know, in the end thinking about is the customer. Right, so the customer uh, definitely <laughs> has a big role in this, and not everyone out there is the same, even within a niche. So, how do you guys look at at the customer experience, the different types of customers? Because obviously, that's at the forefront of everyone's mind during the design process. Well, one of the things we talk about in the book is that there are a set of kind of common ways that businesses think about customers that are not necessarily helpful. Uh, one is literally as consumers, people who buy things, take things and consume products. And there's a great quote, and I want to read it, that came from a consultant named Jerry Mikalski that we love. The quote is, that businesses see a consumer as no more than, quote, a gullet whose only purpose in life is to gulp products and crap cash. A lot of businesses simply see customers as dollar signs. And so that's clearly not helpful. Another typical view of customers that you uh, find in organizations is that of sheep, that customers will do what you tell them as long as you communicate the right marketing messages, you can sway them, you can change their behavior. Decreasingly true as customers get more and more savvy about marketing, get more and more uh, savvy about what really uh, they value from products and, and aren't simply being able to be swayed by persuasive advertising. A little bit more uh, sophisticated notion is that this idea of customers is uh, this homo economicus, this highly rational actor who tries to maximize their happiness and is doing a lot of price comparison and they're doing a lot of smart shopping and they always go for the cheapest product with the best features and that they, they think purely rationally. Well, that's not true. In the same way that we're not cheap, we're also not 
these highly rational actors. We're not Vulcans who remove emotion from, from what, what it is we're doing. Probably the most sophisticated notion that's held particularly uh, increasingly within technology-oriented orga- organizations, websites, or consumer technology companies is this idea of humans as the human factor. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of work in user-centered design around task analysis and, and trying to uh, observe people and what they do and then figuring out how to deliver products that meet that. But what happens is people tend to get reduced to a set of activities that they engage in. While this is better than perhaps some of the others, it's still not complete. It still misses out on what we think is essential. And what we're arguing for in the book is that one of the things businesses need to do is become a lot more empathic with their customers. They need to do a lot more to understand the messy complexity of their customers' lives and deliver things within that. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. You know, make no mistake. But if you want to create sustain, uh, products that sustain uh, within the market and that people keep using and keep coming back to, you've got you to grapple with that messiness. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I, I think businesses traditionally do is they, they understand a certain demographic aspect of their customer they they know how much they make and they know how old they are and you know that sort of fits into a formula and and therefore but i mean what you guys are talking about goes beyond that i mean empathy to me doesn't doesn't fit into what normally what i see uh, businesses doing when they look at demographics so this is a little richer isn't it yeah this is much richer we often work with organizations where they have a complete understanding from a demographic standpoint they can slice and dice their customer base down to to small little segments and micro segments but you begin understanding that at the same time these organizations often haven't actually been in the lives of their customers and haven't actually had a direct conversation with these same customers that they they from a demographic point of view maybe know so much about and so oftentimes just a little bit of interaction of, of we often go with our clients and spend time in the living rooms or in the, the workplaces of their customers to understand their lives. And just that little bit of connection suddenly builds this empathy of, oh, wow, my customer is simply trying to get this kind of experience out of my product or service, and we aren't, weren't actually able to deliver. A quick example we reference a couple times in the book is uh, the work of Deb Adler of uh, ClearRx system with uh, Target. Target created a new bottle for their pharmacy. It came entirely out of the experience Deb had of her grandmother actually take, accidentally taking the prescription of her grandfather. So she built a, and prototyped a pill bottle design that would get out or remove this risk of the wrong patient taking the wrong medication within the home. It was something that no other pharmacy system, no other pill bottle designer had really looked at before, but yet she was able to empathize with this need, uh, realize why prescriptions were often mislabeled or were accidentally taken by the wrong patient, and then was able to create a design that was appropriate for it. So how did she do that? (laughs) How did she do that? She... um, she actually went about uh, creating a pill bottle uh, prototype that had a much more clear hierarchy so that the brand of the drug or the brand of the uh, pharmacy provider wasn't the most important information. It was who is this pill f- for and then what is it, when should it be taken and what exactly is it. And then each pill bottle also gets a unique ring color on it. So if you are blue and you picked up at one target your, your prescription and then went to a completely different target, a couple years later and picked up another subscription, you would still get the blue ring, and they're tracking that through their their system. So by creating a prototype and saying, here's the kind of solution we think we can have, targets operation, pharmacy, training, 
printing systems, everything back through the organization uh, adapted to this new system so that they could support a unique experience that actually no other pharmacy out there can do. That's, that's excellent. And, and actually, just to, to add to that a little bit, that unique color ring is actually a really interesting feature because if you have multiple people in the same family, they all get a different color. And that's something where to, to re- reduce the confusion of taking the wrong person's medication. And that's something where it's not enough to understand the customer as a, as a single solitary unit living life all by themselves. You have to understand the customer within the context of their environment. You have to tie it into the larger context of, of how the, the fulfillment works within Target. But you really hit a basic human need of a human living within a family situation and the risks inherent in taking, taking the wrong medication. Well, that actually hits on something else I want to talk about, which products don't exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, you know, now we're, we're, we're tar- talking about the customer experience and Customers don't exist in a vacuum, but neither do these products, and that a lot of times the services around the products can actually add to their success or lack of service can, you know, mean their demise. So can, can you guys tell us a little bit more about, you know, that, that blurring of the line there? Yeah, so we start the book with, with the story of the Kodak camera, and the reason we do so is because before the original Kodak camera, photography was an extremely complex process that required uh, a lot of uh, savvy on the part of the photographer. You had to know photographic plates, and you had to do your own developing, and you had to do your own printing and all that kind of stuff. George Eastman hit upon a, a brilliant solution when he developed a new type of film, this roll film. It wasn't getting any traction in the market. No one was using it, so he decided to make his own camera to support it. And what he realized is that instead of making a camera as complex as the ones that already existed for photographic plates, he was going to take advantage of this roll film to create a whole new way of of doing photography. And he developed the Kodak camera with this kind of famous advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. And what he ended up doing there was removing a lot of the complexity for the user and bringing, putting it on the company. All you did as the customer was take photos. Then you mailed the camera into Rochester. They did all the complex stuff, and you got the camera back with your prints. And that was that immediately took the product out of being simply a product and more as like an interface into the system. It, it wasn't even this idea of services built around the product. It was that the product and service were integral. You couldn't have one without the other. And what we are seeing now is that this mentality, particularly with digital products, is, is taking on uh, new life. The most obvious example is, is iPod. iPod is not successful simply because it's a sexy object in and of itself. It's successful because it has a tool like iTunes that helps you manage your music. A lot of the, the, almost all the music management happens in the software. The product itself, the actual physical iPod is um, impoverished from a feature standpoint. It does very few things, mostly plays music. You can't delete music, you can't create playlists, you can't do a lot of things. Uh, that's all done on the PC where you have a lot more capabilities. It's a lot easier to, to do those management tasks. Then, of course, there was the genius of the music store so that you uh, now have one system. You have a complete system that allows you to acquire this music that you're then managing in iTunes that you're then playing on your iPod. And now Apple actually has taken it even further with the retail stores where you can learn about uh, iPod or now you know iPod Touch or iPhone, talking to the people who work there, and you know kind of creating this whole highly uh, well-designed contained environment where 
you couldn't remove any one element of it. They're all interconnected and they're all intertwined to deliver an experience that you simply don't get with any of their competitors. Microsoft Zune can't do it. The Sansa folks can't do it. No one else can can deliver that such a holistic experience. And, and I totally agree with that. And, and I was just thinking as you're talking, so then if you're the, the web designer or the small company that, say, has five or six people or a photographer or a musician, and you know this concept, you know, it, it resonates, right? You go, wow, it's true. So then how can you bring that down on, on a smaller level to, to sort of enhance your product? I think one of the exciting things in the world today is you don't necessarily have to build out a complete system yourself, that the world has become much more interoperable, for lack of a better term, that uh, you, for example, no longer have to build out a mapping tool if your site, for example, like Yelp, is about locating uh, businesses and reviewing businesses. You can just focus your business on creating that great content and engaging with your audience and having that kind of good relationship. You don't have to worry about creating a great location and mapping tool because you can just grab the the tool from Google Maps and integrate that. So I think being part of that overall system can also be just being a good player within it, knowing and focusing on what's really unique about your organization and, and prototyping and designing and, and understanding those that niche of users and then integrating well and being a good uh, citizen within the other parts of, a, of an ecosystem. And I think part of that is, is awareness, right? I mean, you really have to be aware of what's going on around you. I mean, if you're a, if you're a photographer and uh, you want to get your work out there and you don't know about Flickr, then I, I, mean, I would say that's a problem, right? So, you, there, you know, you have, to, you have to be aware of what's, uh, what's available to you because you can plug into all this stuff. Uh, interesting you mentioned Flickr because I wanted to kind of follow up on that. Flickr is, for me, kind of this classic example. When they started, they were five or six folks up in Vancouver with an idea for a photo sharing service. And what they recognized is that they looked at this kind of, there's this existing ecosystem of digital photography, if you think to 2004 when they launched. And you had digital cameras are finally surpassing film cameras. You have people taking pictures on camera phones. You have some software to manage your photos, whether it's Picasa or iPhoto. But what they recognized is that it was a mess. There was a there was chaos. There wasn't these things. These services weren't well tied together. Getting cameras off, or sorry, getting photos off of your camera and into your computer. Getting them off of your computer and into the world. Getting a photo off of your phone. There was no clear. wasn't clear what to do with photos that you had on your phone. What Flickr did was they recognized that they could kind of tie together a lot of these disparate points with a service uh, that was around sharing photos and leverage a lot that was already out there, but fill a need that kind of sat in the middle of all of this and realized remarkable value by bringing order to this chaos that was existing. No, I, I totally agree. And actually, this, this sort of, the Flickr example sort of leads into the last thing I want to talk about, which is sustaining this. One of the things I've noticed about Flickr is, okay, it started out mainly photo sharing, but now you can order prints on Flickr. Uh, they they worked with an online uh, image editor, so now you can uh, edit, you know, basically online. You can edit your images. So they, they're really doing things to kind of, once you're there, kind of keep you there and, and kind of keep it going. So sustaining the service is also uh, part of this formula, isn't it? One of the things we talk about in the book and, and when we talk about this stuff is, one of the first things Flickr did was they generated kind of a mission statement. And you can still see it if you go to flickr.com slash about. And there are these two 
statements that they put out there about what Flickr is about. One of them is, we want to make it possible for you to share the, your photos in any way that is important to you, and we want to enable new way of organizing photos. And what's interesting is, when they launched, they were meeting that mission pretty simply, pretty basically. But what you're talking about, whether it's making prints available, MOOC card stuff available, um, allowing different ways for people to hook into it, adding things like the mapping feature or whatever, all of these new services rest on this foundation of these two core values, core core mission statement items that, that their whole business rests on. And so that has allowed Flickr to evolve, to continue to release new stuff while still feeling coherent. It hasn't felt scattered. It hasn't felt messy because they're doing it. They're, everything is still serving those that initial mission. Yeah, I think they're a good example of what happens when an organization really takes on design as part of their competency. It's what they do and they really understand. In the book, we actually outline three ways that an organization could practice design and really take it on internally uh, is something that everyone engages in. One of them we call the long wow. It's the idea that you can build great relationships with customers by impressing them steadily over time just as, as your example with Flickr did, um, where they're continuously releasing new kinds of experiences, new ways to engage with your photos and, and your relationships around photos. Uh, and so this approach largely came out of some inspiration of, of seeing loyalty play out poorly. The, the knee-jerk response to a loyalty problem is often a loyalty card solution where we're going to tier our customers and put them into gold and silver and platinum systems uh, these kind of tiered relationships you have with customers to try to tell them that you value them. And we, we actually went out and, and explored a, a, one of our clients' experiences that they have with, with their customers through this loyalty program and found out that none of the customers actually cared and many of them didn't even know they were part of a loyalty program. That instead, a series of very impressionable experiences you have with an organization can actually be something that builds loyalty over time, that they're someone who can can provide for you, but all as well surprise you and delight you by releasing things steadily over time. So some of the things we talk about for the long while is the the ability to really know your platform, like you said, have that awareness of, of what are pieces and parts out there that I can work with and what is really my main platform for delivering, my main channels for delivering to customers, that having an understanding of the wide area of unmet needs that you're going to go back to again and again to sort of fulfill and build on. So with the Flickr example, what's all this area, this new emerging area around photos and sharing and digital photography that, that we can satisfy customers with? Um, having a repeatable process, some, some way you can deliver over and over again and realize that you're really building on that customer experience. And then really thinking of this long wow as a theater where you're just going to impress people again and again and managing it from that perspective, knowing that over time you may need to um, stop investing in and kill off some experiences as you're delivering new ones. Yeah, I think that's an important part of it too, and, and being able to identify that. So you all work with Adaptive Path. Someone just want to give us a two-minute primer about what Adaptive Path, uh, what they're all about, and uh, where we can find out more about them? Sure. So Adaptive Path is an experienced strategy and design firm. We just had our seventh anniversary. We're based in San Francisco, California. We do largely work on designing for interactive media, web, mobile, device, 
kiosks, etc. And we also we do consulting, but we also do training and events. Teaching has always been an important element of Adaptive Path. That's why we wrote the book. We love to get our ideas out into the world. Uh, and so we have a host of events for a range of uh, interests, uh, from management to uh, practice. You can find out everything and more at our website, uh, AdaptivePath.com. Guys, uh, thanks a lot. I mean, this was really good stuff. I really enjoy it. And I just want to tell you that the book, Subject to Change, is published by O'Reilly Media. It's going to be available in all the usual places. And if you get lost, we're going to give you a link to it in the show notes, so we'll keep you right on the path. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And everything we talked about today is touched on the book. And then, of course, there's a whole lot more. So if you weren't taking notes during the podcast, go get the book. Uh, Thanks a lot, and uh, I'll see you guys later. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. This show was produced and is copyrighted by O'Reilly Media. For more podcasts, tutorials, reviews, weblogs, tips, and tricks, visit O'Reilly Digital Media at digitalmedia.oreilly.com.